know it's a holiday weekend, so I look around, and I believe we have some people out of town traveling for the long weekend, but we're glad that you're here with us this morning, whether you're a member or whether you're a visitor here. We hope that the time we all spend here together today will be strengthening and uplifting for each of us. As we begin this morning, I'd like for you to picture yourself out walking through a neighborhood. And it's one of those neighborhoods that's picturesque. It looks like it came right out of a 1950s TV show, like uh, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, or something like that. The houses are beautiful. The lawns are all perfectly maintained. They're immaculately uh, mowed, all with their well-cared-for flowers, their neatly maintained trees. Some of them even have large, flourishing gardens. All the houses are bright, look to be freshly painted. All of them have nice, shiny windows. Everything is picture perfect. And then as you walk on, you notice another house right in the middle of this ideal neighborhood in a bad state of repair to put it mildly. The grass looks like it hasn't been cut for months. You look at the house and who knows the last time it was painted. Several of the windows are broken out or maybe they have boards nailed up over some of them. Shingles are missing from the roof. You go up and approach this house and you go to the gate, not because you really need to, because part of the fence is down, but you're polite. (laughs) So you go to the gate and you open it and it falls off the hinges. (laughs) And then you start to walk up to the porch and you have a pain at your ankle. You look down and you discover the yard's overrun by thorns. You see a fellow sitting on the porch. You go up to him and make conversation. Ask him how it's going. Oh, well, not too good. Seems like everything's just going to pot these days. Of course, looking around, obviously you agree with him. Things are in a pretty severe state of disrepair. But you point out to him, well, he could at least cut back the weeds some. He could patch up those windows. He could put a fresh coat of paint on the house. Over there, he's even got room for a garden if he wants to plant one. No, I can't, I can't do any of that. My, my back really bothers me these days. And, uh, you know, my muscles just aren't what they used to be. And I'm just always so tired all the time. I, I can't do any of that. There's just too much to do. So we look at this man and his house and his garden, and I need to be careful here considering I don't yet mow my own yard, I suppose. But we look at this man and we realize that here is a man who simply has not done what he could have and what he should have done. He's neglected his own basic responsibilities. And that's precisely the picture that Solomon presents to us in the 24th chapter of Proverbs. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw it, 
and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Solomon's story here is all about neglect. And when neglect takes place, decay automatically sets in. I think particularly with tomorrow being Labor Day, this is a timely topic for us to consider. So I want us to think about this passage for a few moments this morning. It it raises some questions for us to ponder. And the first one is, why was this man so neglectful. And let's concentrate specifically on his field, on his vineyard, on his garden, as we've called it. Why was he so neglectful of it? And I expect if you were to ask this fellow that, he'd probably give you a variety of excuses. He might say, well, you know, I don't really have enough room for a garden. And if we were to point out that, well, you've got a, a whole big field here you could plant it in. There's plenty of room. Well, I know, but it It's not going to be as big as any of my neighbor's garden, so I figured why even bother if it couldn't measure up. He had plenty of space. He had a whole field there full of potential. But he didn't utilize that which was there. That applies to our lives, too. God has given us in our lives, a metaphorical field that we have to work. It's right there just waiting for us to plant something in it. We can choose what we plant it, whether it's good seed or whether it's bad seed, but the field is there. It's available, waiting for us to do something with it. Maybe this man would say, well, Yeah, I have room for a garden, but, you know, the soil just isn't fertile here. Nothing will grow. Now, we don't have this problem so much here, but back in the Spicewood area, in the hill country, we had a garden, or we tried to a few years, but it's pretty hard because if you want to dig down more than about three or four inches, you practically need a jackhammer to break up all the rocks. It's a different soil than what we have here. And so maybe this fellow says, well, you know, if I planted some seeds, they just wouldn't grow. I knew it'd be a waste of time, and so I decided not to even try at all. But if that's true, how do you explain that bumper crop of weeds? He grew thorns, he grew nettles. Ground that will grow thorns and nettles will grow flowers and it will grow fruit and it will grow vegetables those same minerals that produce those weeds can also produce something that's worthwhile that same thing is true in our lives the soil that we have can produce either evil or good and in fact it will produce either evil or good it's going to produce some sort of result So our duty as Christians is to endeavor to go out and to to plant that good seed, to sow it anywhere that we can so that the result will be good fruit that people bear in this field that is their lives. Maybe the man would say, well, you know, I guess the ground isn't too bad, but the environment here is terrible. I knew that if I planted anything, animals would just come in and, and take it all away. It didn't stand a chance. 
But that's not a good excuse either because if you remember what the text says back in verse number 31, it says the stone wall was broken down. Now why was the stone wall there in the first place? To protect the field, right? To keep those wild animals out of it, to keep them from getting in and and taking the produce there. So by neglecting the wall, he made it a bad environment. He made it possible for those animals to get in and take those things away. Sometimes people will say, well, I want to live for Christ, but it's just a bad environment. You don't understand the people I have to work with. You don't understand the temptations that I face. We look around at our society and we say that this world is just too difficult. How can we possibly stay faithful in our modern day culture? How can we endure? But do you realize that God has given us everything that we need in order to endure? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul tells us in this familiar passage, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Make sure you keep up that wall. Make sure you put on that whole armor. That's our responsibility. But if we do that, God's provided those things so that we can withstand those darts from the evil one, so that we can keep our field safe from those wild animals that might want to come in. Through God's help, you can live victoriously for Christ, even in a bad environment. And I've got news for you. The world always has been and always will be a bad environment. Our contemporary culture is no excuse. So once we sift through all of these possibilities, why did this man fail? He didn't fail because he couldn't have a garden. He had an entire field. He didn't fail because his soil was infertile. It produced thorns, nettles, weeds. It could have produced something good too. He didn't fail because wild animals would have gotten in. He himself had allowed the wall to fall into disrepair. Why did he fail? The Proverbs writer tells us it was for a simple reason. Pure unmitigated, unadulterated laziness. This man was lazy. In fact, Solomon calls him a sluggard, which is just a fancy word for lazy. This man had an aversion to any sort of work, didn't want to work up a sweat, didn't want to strain his muscles in any way. And Solomon says, I considered it. I looked and received instruction. That is, I took a lesson from this. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So here's a picture of laziness. and Solomon says that can have disastrous consequences. We all need to be aware of this because, unfortunately, laziness has the potential to be the enemy of all of us at different times and in different ways in our lives. We can all fall prey to this. And if we don't battle it, it can defeat us with those consequences that we see pictured here. So why is this so serious? That's the second big question. Why is this picture here in Proverbs such a tragedy? And I think there's two reasons, really. The first is that this man failed in his responsibility to others to help make some sort of contribution 
to society. Now, we don't all work in the same way. Some of us may work in the fields like this man should have. Should have. Some of us may work in factories or in plants. Some of us may work in an office. Some of us may work in the home, but we all have work to do. We're all called to labor, whether we like it or not. Scripture makes it clear that we have a duty to work. It's everybody's responsibility. Whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, wise or unwise, rich or poor, we all have this duty to work. It's everybody's job to do something constructive. Think about when you see a machine, or particularly, let's think about it in our terms, you think about some new piece of technology, something bright, shiny, new. What's your first question about it? What does it do? Well, that's really the question that's asked of us. We ask it of this man, what did he do? Nothing. This man did nothing. And the tragedy of his life is that he never learned the blessing of giving. He only thought about receiving. He only sat there in his sloth and thought about himself and how he could get everything that he could out of life with exerting the least amount of effort. He didn't learn that blessing of contributing to the welfare of others around him. But that doesn't just affect others, that affects ourselves too, which brings us to the, the second big tragedy here. This man never learned the value of work to himself. It's through work that we can develop our sense of responsibility. It's through work that we can achieve our greatest potential. And yet so many people have an aversion to work. It's like the fellow who went to his doctor complaining about all the aches and pains that he had that prevented him from doing anything around the house that his wife asked him to do. They put him through a battery of tests, and when he was awaiting the results, he said to the doctor, look, doc, I don't want to hear all the medical mumbo-jumbo. Just give it to me straight. I can handle it. What's wrong with me? The doctor said, all right, in plain English, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just lazy. And the guy said, all right, now give me some medical term I can go home and tell my wife. Or then there's the, uh, the preacher. <laughs> the preacher who named his bed the Word. That way he would have an excuse to give members if anybody came by and said, oh, preacher, I went by the building, you weren't there. Oh, brother, I just spent a little more time in the Word this morning. Because that was the name of his bed, see. He was asleep. It's not that funny when I have to explain it. Maybe it wasn't that funny to begin with. Maybe that's only funny to me. <laughs> there are a lot of people like that, and that's what this man was like. The tragedy of his life is that because he never worked, he never developed that sense of responsibility, that sense of determination, those leadership qualities, even a sense of self-worth. Those weren't fostered and nurtured and developed the way that they would have been had he worked. God's plan for humanity has always been to work, even going back to the beginning. Now, sometimes we think of that as a punishment. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that man's told he's got to work the ground by the sweat of his brow. But humanity was given work to do even before that. Before that punishment, in the garden, we had a job to do, 
to take care of it, to dress it, to keep it. Humanity needs work. So what happens if we don't get busy doing that? That's the final question we might ask. What did laziness do to this man's life? And I think there are really three things here that are worth noting. First of all, his laziness contributed to the fact that he was never able to bring in the harvest. He never knew the joy of going out to his lamb when it was harvest time and seeing those rows that he'd planted, of cultivating them and bringing in the fruits here of his labor. He could have brought in a crop, some sort of food that would have fed hungry people. Maybe he wouldn't have grown food. He could have grown flowers that would have filled the air with perfume. But he didn't raise any flowers or any wheat or any vegetables. Not because he could not, but because he would not. Remember, this capability existed. He just chose not to do it. Maybe sometimes we sit here and we wish that, I wish the church here would grow more. Or I wish the church here had more programs. Or I wish the elders would do this. Or I wish the preacher wouldn't tell so many corny jokes. Or whatever it is we may wish that would be different. Have you ever flipped that around and thought about the church's potential? Jesus started with only 12 men. One of those dropped out, and yet from that nucleus, they went and they turned the world upside down. Now, maybe sometimes you wish, you think we should do more, should have been doing more, wish we could do more, but, but think about the sorts of things we have accomplished and do accomplish. Uh, every month, multiple times a month, we feed literally hundreds of hungry people in this community, and several of you are directly involved in that, volunteering in that work. We had Rod Kyle here just a few weeks ago, and partially through the contributions we've made, he's been able to establish firmly some self-supporting congregations there in New Zealand. And not only that, he's carrying the gospel to the Solomon Islands. And there are other mission works that we support. We contributed to disaster relief. We contributed to children's homes. I mean, a lot of you have been filling up uh, that barrel outside with macaroni and cheese for the past several weeks. On and on and on, we could go with things like that, tangible differences that we make. And then think of the potential. Think of what could be done through the work and through the witness of the people who are here in this room this morning. Think about the reverberations of those things that we already have done in far-flung places like New Zealand. But think about then what we could do if we had a mind to do it. We have a door-knocking campaign coming up just a month from now. Pretty soon, we're going to have a meeting or two about that to get that organized. And I don't know if you've thought about that, if you're planning to get involved, but I want to challenge you to do it. I know it's not the easiest thing to do. It takes some courage. It's not easy for me either to go up and knock on a stranger's door. And I know that you're thinking this isn't even all that effective, and I'm not saying it's a magic bullet. We might knock on a thousand doors and maybe only get one person to come to church. I don't know. But we'll never have any results if we don't do 
anything. So whether it's getting involved in that or whether it's getting involved in some other activity, I want to challenge you, if you think the church should be doing more, growing more, get your hands dirty. Get involved. We all need to do that. The second thing that we learned here, result of his laziness, is that it caused the weeds to grow. You know, he never made a decision to grow weeds. He never said, you know, I I think this year I'm going to raise a big bumper crop of weeds. That's what I want to do. No. He just did nothing. And nature took care of the rest. The moment you decide not to plant anything good in your life, look out. Because that's when the weeds are going to take over. You can raise a fine crop of weeds with flabby muscles and soft white palms. It doesn't take any effort at all on your part. And there are some people who are just like that. They don't want to be unchristian, but they don't want to be too overtly Christian either. They don't want to expend any sort of effort, any diligence in trying to follow Jesus. We've asked the question of the jailer before in Philippi. We all know this. What must I do to be saved? Flip that around. What must I do to be lost? Nothing. You don't have to do anything in order to be lost. Nature abhors a vacuum. And the moment we decide that we're not going to cultivate the soil, we're not going to plant something good there, we can be sure that something evil is going to spring up. It'll grow and it'll blight your life. And that's the third and final result of his laziness, really. The wall was broken down, and the weeds grew, and the picture of total disintegration shows that there was nothing left of his garden. Now the snakes live there. Now the wild animals run through it. It's been totally ruined because this man decided to do nothing. Our lives are the same way. When we don't plant the good seed, when we don't cultivate that field that the Lord has given us, the weeds, the thorns, the nettles start to grow. Pretty soon that wall that was meant to protect us from the evil one comes tumbling down. And with nothing there, with it being empty, comes rushing in. And it overtakes us completely. There's nothing left. So this morning, if we as Christians are going to live for Christ, we must become workers. We must be diligent. We must cultivate the field that God has given us. We have to build up the walls. We have to go and and take care of the soil. We have to make sure that that seed of the gospel is planted in the heart's and in the minds and in the lives of others so that they can go and they can produce good fruit too. That's our task. How is your garden growing? If you're here this morning and you've never turned your life over to Christ, I want to urge you to do that today. Put your trust in him and turn to God in repentance. Be buried in the waters of baptism where your sins are washed away, where you're added to his people, and begin this life of of 
cultivating your field for the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning, and rather than being diligent in the Christian life, you've simply been lazy. You haven't done what you needed to do, and you need to make changes. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.